From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. The New York Times did a lengthy piece, but a beautiful piece, on the differences between social studies textbooks, depending on which state the textbook is published in. In some cases, like when it comes to teaching the Second Amendment, the textbook is slightly different in Texas compared to California. Same thing in teaching civil rights, same thing in teaching what happened between the white people and Native Americans. And so my question is, what are we doing here in Seattle? And to answer that question, Kathleen Vasquez has joined us. She's the Seattle Public Schools Program Manager of Literacy and Social Studies. I take it you saw that piece. I did see the piece, and thank you for inviting me here to talk about social studies textbooks. I thought it was, um, I knew there were differences. This has been going on for a long time. But, uh, for example, in the California textbook, they go over the Constitution, the amendments, and the Second Amendment has a little box which says pro-gun rights groups have challenged some of these provisions. And then in the Texas textbook, it's blank. There's nothing there. And the same thing with the treatment of um, slavery, and and especially it was pointed out to me by, um, I think it was a teacher who said, you know, Dave, the history of black people in America stops at 1865 and doesn't pick up again until 1964. And I realized that he was right. When I went to school, we stopped learning about civil rights uh, after the Civil War. And then since I lived through the whole civil rights thing, that's when we picked up on it again. I had no idea what happened afterwards. So how do you go about selecting a textbook in Seattle's public school district? It's actually a very lengthy process. So our policy, our board policy, requires a lot of additional items that maybe other districts don't have. But I actually think those requests are really healthy for our district. We survey our teachers, our school leaders, our, our families, and our community members. And we ask them, what are the things that are important to you about teaching social studies that you hope to see in our newest adoption? And that's our first step. Before we even start e- examining any textbooks, we look out, what do people want to see now? And well, Let me stop you there. When, yeah. you do, when you do a process like that, how do you prevent the process from being essentially hijacked by the activists who will come in organized with an agenda and the, you know, the sort of regular parents may not have a voice? Well, that's a good question. One of the things we've done is we've figured out a way to reach out via email to all of our families. So every family member has a link that they can respond to. The other thing we've done is we've gone out to community groups. So we went out to Centro de la Raza. We went out to Daybreak Star. We went out to places where you you can reach more families who are often disengaged. And we gave them kind of hard copies of a survey Mm -hmm. and we translated into four languages so that we could reach families whose voices often aren't heard very, mm-hmm. you know, frequently. And, and you know, you, you might not get as many of those uh, community members, but you get some. So which, which parts of textbooks seem to be most controversial? You know, controversy is an interesting thing. I think the, in Seattle, the controversy is um, our voices of our marginalized communities 
heard in those textbooks. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, that is a controversy. So I think that the article you point out is an interesting one, but I played it out, uh, you know, what would Seattle say in response to that? And I think we are very careful to ensure that diverse voices are present in the history. And it's never enough for Seattle. That's a, That's an interesting thing. So the last textbook adoption was middle school social studies, and it was around five years ago. And I remember those conversations um, because the textbooks often either misrepresented a historical event or didn't touch upon it enough. Like what? A good example would be um, the Chinese Exclusion Act of mm-hmm. 18, eight, it was around 1880. In the current textbook, it is one sentence. And that actually was uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act had a ripple effect on the treatment of Asian Americans in this country. I think it actually led the way for Japanese um, internment because of anti-Asian hostility. But it was one sentence. But, you know, our conversations on textbook adoption committee is, okay, if we adopt this textbook, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to just allow it to be a sentence? Assign other books. Or are we going yeah. to research and provide more um, primary source documents? And one of the things I'd say is the way social studies has changed over the years since we took social studies classes in high school, in middle school, we'd get a textbook and that's all we'd get. Not so now. Most of our teachers in Seattle are bringing in primary source documents from the time, newspaper articles, diaries, journals, propaganda photos, and putting them in front of students and saying, what do these primary sources tell us about the historical event that the textbook isn't telling yeah, us Yeah, that about. makes sense. I know there are some teachers who just don't want to use the textbooks at all. They just try to use all primary sources if they can arrange it. Correct. And that's okay with you? Um, or is there a district policy on that? There, there, there are policies we are to use the textbook, but the textbook is one source, and we consider it a source, and it informs the big pieces of what we should be teaching. It informs a chronology of events, and it allows us to stay um, aligned as teachers. If we, were, if you and I were teaching at the same school in seventh grade, we might use that textbook as the base for our teaching and then fill in where needed. Yeah. Now, the real controversy, it seems to me anyway, comes when people have a, a problem, a moral problem with things that are being taught when it comes to gender studies. Because some of this stuff is also in, well, it certainly wasn't covered at all in textbooks when I was going through school. But now you have textbooks that are trying to include uh, trans culture and queer culture, and I'm not familiar with them all, sorry. Uh, But what do you do when a parent says, I don't care whether this is accurate or not. Mm -hmm. This is not something I want my kids exposed to. That's a great question, and that does happen. It does happen. And in Seattle, we do allow parents to have that voice. And if, if they do not want their child part of that, they write a letter and we will find an alternative activity so you for that, that time. What happens if it comes up on a test and you haven't studied it? 
That's a really good question. I'm I'm not sure how teachers handle that, but I do know this is this situation is not new. We've had parents opt out of units. So I, I'm also literacy. Um, so let's say, for example, a parent does not want um, a student reading autobiography of Malcolm X, and mm-hmm. that's not even on our list. But let's just say that was the situation. The parent could opt out, and the teacher would find a substitute text. The student would read that text and probably demonstrate their understanding of the text in some way. So you do cater to that, though. I mean, so you, you, in other yes. words, not, not only do you um, try to uh, assist the parent with the way they want to bring up their kid, but you would actually change the testing requirements? We would ensure that, that? That, that what the skills that students were asked to demonstrate in one unit are the same skills. So whether it's critical reading, whether it's stating a claim and backing that up with evidence, those those skills can be applied to multiple situations. So we would do that. I, I do want to say that um, I've been in the district for 16 years and, and this happens, but it is very infrequent that a situation like what you're talking about occurs. And when it does occur, we do have precedent for it. Yeah. So do you ever have parents say, uh, look, I'm going to teach my version of slavery to my kid or I'm going to teach my version of the Revolutionary War and stuff <laughs> like that? And you know, you, you know, no one has said that, although I'm certain it happens. I mean, uh-huh. my father, my father was a historian and he always told us his version of events. And so that I mean, it happens in every home. Yeah, right. That's going to happen anyway. And at least it's, it's good that it's being discussed. Yes. I know there's disagreement over what happened and uh, how brutal this battle was and how brutal that battle was. But at least if you can engender an interest in history, kids are free to read up on their own. Correct. And unfortunately, I read a study once that said 8% of adults believe that history was the most important class they took in high school. And so I think that now we are seeing teachers find ways to engage students in history that are very different from the ways that we were taught history. We were taught history, memorize all these facts and places and dates. Now, teachers begin with overarching questions that students explore, that there's no right answer. Hmm. Well, that's no right answer. There are some parents who think there has to be a right answer when it comes to history. And the right answer is this, that you should emerge from your history class as a patriotic American. And if the history class teaches a version of American history that makes you question America as the exceptional nation, uh, they don't want their kids learning that version. And I would say now that we are not teaching history that way, we are teaching history from a questioning standpoint. Hmm. So a question could be um, maybe in a government class, does state or federal government have a greater impact on your life? So you'd explore state laws, federal laws, and then take it back to yourself and answer that question. And you can see through a question like that, it requires you to know the difference between state and federal law, and it requires you to reflect on your own experience in life 
and come up with an answer. Big, big questions like that require students to investigate, explore, um, research, but also look at their own experiences and fold into that. Because otherwise, history becomes very divorced from who we are as people. Um, what are the causes and effects of the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't help us engage with the curriculum. But what the Civil War has taught us to present day might invite us in a little bit more. How do you teach the uh, expansion of America, westward expansion? This idea, and the way I was taught it, you know, America was basically empty. And it was the Europeans who turned it into a nation. When we now know, in fact, there were plenty of nations in America already, which were uh, actually quite uh, advanced. And that what we look on as uh, primitive today was actually in harmony with the environment in a way that we can only dream of these days. Uh, but there are parents who are, I think, are very concerned that if you talk about the massacres on both sides of white people and uh, of uh, Native Americans, this will not make us look better than other countries. It will make us look almost exactly like every other country in the way that uh, we took over territory. Well, I believe that the vast majority of Seattle teachers would teach the full history. Mm -hmm. We have a department that is called the um, Native American Education Department, and they very much believe that they are the first people and so they would insist upon telling that entire story. And most of our history teachers would say, we will tell the full story. Yes, there was expansion that was um, brought upon by European settlers, but there were also real occurrences that took place with Native peoples, and we must tell their stories. And so there's a curriculum called Since Time in Memorial, um, and that is developed by Washington State Native educators who ensure that the entire stories are told. So they have a curriculum that is state approved. They have resources. They have questions. And teachers tap into those resources. And it's been some of the most exciting training for them as of late. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, to get back to my original question, that these schools have an obligation, though, to uh, turn out patriotic graduates? I believe our schools have a responsibility to teach civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And that what that means is from K on, understanding that we have a voice in this country and that we need to do everything we can to exercise our voice. And we can keep democracy alive by doing that. So exploring the ways that we do that from very early on, from fourth grade on, elections become a part of the curriculum. And the, the, the simplest way, of course, is to vote. Other ways, of course, are to engage more publicly in um, governmental affairs and running for office, you know, if you want to go that far. But I think that's where... Our mm -hmm. standards really lie around the focus on civic engagement. Let me push this point a little further. The Seattle School District is extremely diverse. Uh, you have people who have come from various uh, ethnic traditions, of course, but also various political traditions, many of them not as free as ours. Yes. 
some countries where there is no separation between church and state. Do you feel an obligation to make sure that they emerge believing in the American way of governing as opposed to the way that they left back home? That's a really good question, and I hadn't thought about it like that. I do think that once in the United States, government is here. It impacts our lives. And to understand um, how to shape, form, and be a part of it, you have to understand its workings. Do we believe in saying one governmental system is superior to another? We don't say that, you know, but at the same time, I'd say we don't spend a lot of time exploring other governmental systems. I think a lot of the fear of immigration that some people hold today is based on this idea that it is very difficult to take somebody who comes from a different type of system and make them uh, thoroughly American and would like to see a clearer commitment on the part of at least public schools to saying that, okay, you may have settled arguments a certain way back in your home country involving sort of these private negotiations or payments of some kind. But in America, you know, we have a court system and this is the way it's done. And whether it's spoken out loud or not, we are saying, and this is the better way to do it because that's the way we do it here. And now that you're here, you're expected to behave that way. Uh, do, you, do you feel comfortable spreading a message like that, or do you have to keep it uh, completely neutral so there's room for people to say, well, but if we want to set up an alternative community where we do things a little bit differently, then uh, we feel entitled to do that? You know, I, I do not think teachers are heavy-handed like that. Interestingly enough, Seattle Public Schools has a ethnic studies project underway where many of our teachers – are providing actually year-long courses that examine uh, people from different countries and their engagement in the United States and in literature. And I think that those projects are opening up the doors to just examining um, ourselves, examining American life and um, American culture and the way other cultures and experiences have interacted with that. And so that's a, a, a different um, way we can view this question that you're posing. I, I, I would hope that most of our teachers are not saying American ways are better, but just this is the way it is. And here is, here is how our, our system works and here's how we can work to change it and make it better. Kathleen Vasquez is the Seattle Public Schools Program Manager of Literacy and Social Studies, which sounds like a really fun job. But some of those meetings with parents are, are amazing to watch. Thank <laughs> well, you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.